Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. If you missed me over these last two weeks, well, we're back with our regularly scheduled uh, weekly updates about fascism and the right wing in the world. Uh, this week, we got a lot of news in the United States, some news from Hungary and Haiti, and a see you in hell from France in World War II. In the United States, we've had more uh, flips uh, by members of the Oath Keepers. Uh, these are people who are pleading guilty to their participation in the January 6th attempted coup uh, held by Donald Trump and his supporters earlier this year. Uh, this is from Raw Story. A guy named Caleb Berry has pled guilty on conspiracy charges about storming the Capitol. Uh, specifically, he's pled guilty to, you know, the fact that he and his fellow members of the Oath Keepers, a fascist paramilitary organization, uh, engaged in paramilitary training in order to stage the coup, used improvised weapons uh, to assault Capitol Police officers, uh, that they used improvised weapons to storm the building, uh, that they had guns stashed uh, in hotels and you know other buildings around D.C. Um, we also have continued Proud Boy activism and street activity. The Proud Boys uh, are another one of the fascist organizations in the United States, also present at the January 6th attempted coup. Some of them were present at CPAC, more on CPAC later. Uh, and we also have a story from Vice uh, about Proud Boy activities and rallies outside of a spa in L.A. Uh, that they dislike essentially because it is a trans-friendly organization uh, that uh, encourages people to use the facilities of the gender and identity that is their own. Another story from Raw Story, a Tress Genko from Ohio has been arrested because of his plan to shoot members of a sorority at an Ohio University campus. We don't know uh, the campus that he was planning on uh, attacking uh, it's well it's either that or he wasn't planning on anyone in particular because he was caught relatively early uh, Jenko wrote a manifesto was found via his online searches which included quote how to plan a mass shooting and also uh, when does planning a mass shooting become an attempt you know trying to do some legal ass covering there uh, fortunately it didn't work he was found out uh, this sort of thing has unfortunately become relatively standard after the Elliot Roger killings uh, in Santa Barbara in 2014. Elliot Roger was a famous, you know, incel, quote unquote. Um, incels are people who uh, believe that the fact that they are not in a sexual relationship, uh, typically these are heterosexual men talking about sexual relationships with heterosexual women, uh, they believe that the fact that they are not in such a relationship constitutes a personal and social grievance, and so they are involuntarily celibate. That's where incel comes from. Uh, Jenko identified with this and, like Elliot Roger, believed that it was his duty or at least his right uh, to, in his mind, retaliate against women for not having sex with him by murdering them. Uh, unfortunately, the example that Elliot Rogers set, uh, killing several people and also later himself in Santa Barbara, uh, was a sort of catalyst for many copycat uh, activities uh, in the years since. Finally, from Huffington Post, uh, we see that Texas is no longer going to teach about the KKK, essentially. Uh, the GOP there has passed a law saying that you don't have to teach about the KKK. Uh, you don't have to talk about their uh, evils or their crimes or their militarism uh, or even just represent them as a problem. 
uh, in United States society. Uh, that's extremely disgusting, first of all, um, and it's in keeping with uh, the ongoing um, attack that the GOP has been making against the teaching of U.S. history, particularly as it pertains to racism uh, and anti-blackness. Finally, the last bit of U.S. news that I'm going to talk about this week is a really big one. Uh, since I last recorded an episode, CPAC met in Texas. They met over the weekend of July 9th in Dallas, and the featured speaker was none other than former President Donald Trump. Now, this is particularly big news um, because Trump's inclusion participation in CPAC, uh, which for those of you who are unaware, is essentially the big flagship gathering of uh, conservatives and Republican Party members uh, that is not directly affiliated with the party itself. Uh, CPAC is a really big deal. Uh, the speakers at CPAC are often the people that are going to be, you know, or at least perceived to be uh, at the forefront of the Republican Party and the conservative movement in the United States. It's often true that the speakers at CPAC are like sort of favored people <laughs> to be presidential nominees in the years coming. And so Trump's inclusion here uh, indicates that. But it also indicates that he's just he's just inside the conservative movement um, after his defeat last fall and after his attempted coup in early January. There was a chance, you know, there was an opportunity uh, for the right wing in the United States to rebuke him, uh, to not include him just like in the interior, in the halls of power of their movement. Um, but that's just not what's going to happen. Uh, he is on the inside. He was never pushed out. Uh, he is remaking the Republican Party and the conservative movement along the lines of his politics. Uh, in his speech, uh, which was quite long, uh, he defended those who stormed the Capitol, essentially justifying his attempted coup, uh, going so far as to imply that the woman who died uh, in uh, her attempt to storm the Capitol was some sort of, you know, hero uh, that she had, you know, given her life for the cause, uh, essentially as a martyr. Uh, he defended those storming the Capitol and said that, you know, they were trying to rectify uh, the um, injustice of his supposed loss, because, you know, in his perspective in the propaganda campaign that he's been waging, uh, his loss was not real. You know, that election was stolen from Donald Trump due to election fraud. And this lie is what is being accepted as a mainstream perspective uh, by the Republicans and by conservatives. And I know that this is the kind of thing that like, yeah, you know, you could go on MSNBC and hear this too. But like, this isn't just like moralistic wrangling here. You know, I'm not upset because they're lying. Uh, I'm upset because they're doing something very particular. They are undermining the very nature and idea of how democracy works. Uh, and they're doing that very successfully and within one of the two major parties in the United States. What this means is that one of the major parties in the United States is being consumed um, by an ideology and by a politics that holds essentially that um, elections don't matter uh, and that the word of their leader is the thing that matters the most um, and that political violence, you know, an attempted coup is a legitimate form of politics. That perspective, once it takes hold in a party like that, is extremely hard to dislodge. It doesn't really go away. 
that the GOP and conservatives have given space to this and are aligning with Trump on this issue shows that they're essentially on the side that they endorse the remaking of their movement into one that is ambivalent on elections at best and that supports political violence even when it threatens the lives of the members of that movement. Remember, Mike Pence, the like the conservative Christian um, in the United States, that's why Donald Trump picked him for his VP. Mike Pence is essentially the standard bearer of the Republican Party of George W. Bush, you know, Christian conservatism, family values, all that sort of jazz, right? And he could have been killed on January 6th. There were people calling for hanging him. They brought a guillotine. I mean, like they wanted to kill the guy. And the GOP is essentially being like, yeah, you know, those are the people who are going to be at the head of our party. That is our politics now. In Hungary, we have another chapter in that country's uh, anti-LGBTQ advocacy and activism. Uh, Hungary is ruled by Viktor Orban, the prime minister. Uh, he has been in power for over a decade at this point. And he has run afoul of the European Union, specifically uh, the legal apparatus in the European Union uh, that has been going after Hungary, uh, essentially for human rights violations. Uh, this is because Hungary, uh, under Orban, recently passed a law uh, that prevents any teaching or instruction related to queerness, uh, related to LGBTQ plus issues, uh, or even just depicting people who are not straight uh, on television uh, before the watershed that is, you know, the, the point in television programming uh, where you're allowed to show things that, you know, the censors don't want children to see. Uh, and it also specifically prevents any teaching about queerness, alternative sexualities, homosexuality, anything at all um, in schools. Uh, Orban and his government frame this uh, as a child protection law. Um, and the latest development in this uh, in this saga is that Orban has uh, just really doubled down on his perspective. Uh, in the wake of the EU bringing these legal proceedings against him and his country, he said that he's going to hold a referendum in Hungary to see whether or not people support uh, this perspective, you know, whether they they think that uh, this law is a good idea. Uh, like most referendum, uh, this is a pretty shitty piece of uh, poll uh, making. Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's clearly engineered and orchestrated um, to get the results that he wants. So it probably will. And also the fact is that like, Orban is in power because people vote for him. Like these, these perspectives, uh, these pieces of legislation are sufficiently popular in Hungary, at least to command government support and, you know, to be run by a party that has won an election. Uh, so unfortunately, it's very possible that uh, they will stay in place uh, and it will precipitate a, you know, a real wrangling um, between Orban and the European Union. And in the wake of Brexit, that could have a whole slew of effects on how the European Union works, uh, especially given that Brexit and Orban both represent a nationalistic right-wing turn uh, within Western Europe. Finally, uh, for those of you who have not heard about it, and unfortunately this didn't make a big 
news splash in the United States, uh, former Haitian president, uh, Jovenel Moïse, uh, is the former president of Haiti because he was assassinated. He was murdered in his sleep, um, by several dozen, um, military commandos. Um, these commandos are, they seem like mercenaries, uh, is the word. Uh, most of them are Colombian nationals, but some of them are U.S. citizens, uh, or at least carrying U.S. citizenship papers. Um, these are people who were involved in paramilitary activity and also police activity. Um, it remains unknown exactly who it was who hired them. Um, but, uh, the, um, surviving Members of his family, including his wife, uh, have accused various Haitian politicians uh, who remain in power, essentially. Um, it remains unclear exactly what the relationship is between these paramilitary forces, um, these mercenaries, uh, and the current holders of power in Haiti, uh, or any foreign entities such as the United States or France or Colombia, for that matter. Uh, we're going to have to stay tuned on this one. And finally, going to close out this episode as I do every episode with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the death of a prominent right-wing figure in history. This week, we got a big one, uh, Marshal Pétain. Marshal is his title. Uh, he was a French uh, military marshal. Uh, his uh, given name is Henri. Uh, Pétain was born in France, in northern France, in 1856, quite a long time ago, uh, and joined the French army at uh, 20 went to officer school, uh, and spent his whole military career essentially without major military success. He never served overseas, um, except for a brief stint in Morocco. You know, he didn't really do all that much. Uh, by the start of World War II, he was essentially uh, one foot out the door in retirement as a middling colonel, you know, a, a an officer, but not a general, and he didn't think he was ever going to make general. World War I, of course, changed that massively. Um, World War I transformed the French military and a series of quick promotions led to him essentially commanding French military forces at Verdun, uh, which was the site of an extremely important battle between the French and the Germans. Uh, Pétain is uh, credited with stopping the German advance and thus preventing what might have been a very successful invasion by Germany of France. Uh, this created the stalemate that was World War I uh, essentially until the um, intervention of the United States and the successful use, uh, widespread use of military tanks. After World War I, uh, Pétain was hailed as a war hero um, because of his you know, successful defense of France against the Germans, uh, which led to a successful political career you know, in the Ministry of War, uh, several ambassadorships, uh, including one to Francoist Spain, uh, Franco having been a pupil of Pétain when Pétain was teaching at the military academy. Then comes World War II. Now, at this point, Pétain is, you know, essentially retired from military life as such. Uh, he's a political figure. He's a popular figure. He's a war hero. Uh, after France's surrender to Germany, uh, there is a complicated series of shuffles, renegotiations, uh, determinations of exactly how the French government is going to work. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, but the shuffle essentially leaves Pétain in charge of a rump collaborator state in mainland France. Uh, this government is known today as Vichy France, uh, V-I-C-H-Y, uh, due to the location of its capital at Vichy 
which was a popular like spa resort destination. Uh, it was essentially chosen because it had a bunch of hotel rooms and they were nice hotel rooms. And that is where you can, you know, stick a bunch of politicians and lawyers when they can't go to Paris because the Germans have occupied and uh, set up shop in Paris. Right. Uh, so Pétain is the leader of Vichy France, and it is a right-wing nationalist fascistic state. Uh, they changed the French motto from liberty, equality, and fraternity to work, family, and country uh, in line with um, essentially the Nazi motto. Um, they are a collaborator uh, with the Nazis on the Holocaust. Uh, they supplied the Germans with military personnel uh, and also with military and um, civilian supplies. They were collaborators, right? They worked with the Nazis. Um, Pétain essentially used this opportunity to create a right-wing French, like an alternate France, um, a, 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 a like a fascistic one. Um, after Germany's defeat, uh, Pétain is put on trial for treason and sentenced to death. Uh, that sentence was then commuted to life given Pétain's old age and failing health. Uh, imprisoned and increasingly senile, uh, Pétain died at the age of 95 in custody uh, due to heart problems and age. He died this week in history, July 23rd, 1951. So, Pétain, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you found the podcast interesting, educational, helpful, uh, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. Like, share, subscribe uh, on whatever uh, platform you are using to listen to this. Uh, share it with friends, family, and comrades. Uh, I'm also on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. Uh, send me questions, thoughts, concerns, uh, things I fucked up on. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you later.